everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Martin Yant. A few weeks ago, I was on a call with him, and he talked about his book and his work on wrongful convictions. I was able to read a copy on my Kindle and was rather blown away. It outlined a huge amount of problems with wrongful convictions, but it happened to be written nearly 30 years ago. So welcome to the show, Martin. Good to be with you. So how did you get into the subject of wrongful convictions? It came about through my investigative reporting um, when I became editor of the Mansfield News Journal in Ohio in 1978. Um, I immediately began getting information about a very corrupt sheriff and his deputies. So I began an investigation of them, which led to the conviction of the sheriff and seven deputies on all kinds of corruption charges and brutality charges. And in the process of that, I uncovered that the sheriff was worried about a local businessman who might run against him the next time he ran for sheriff. So he set about to frame him so he couldn't run against him. So that kind of uh, impressed upon me how easy it can be for somebody to be wrongly convicted. So that spurred both my interest in corrupt law enforcement in general and an interest in wrongful convictions uh, specifically. And how did you go about researching your book? How did you find all those cases that you outlined? Yeah, this was uh, pre-internet. It would have been a lot easier today, I think. Um, spent a lot of time in the library. The other influential thing on my, on my process of uh, becoming interested in wrongful convictions was in 1973, at that point, 83, when I was a columnist for the Columbus Dispatch, I wrote a column about an Ohio State University criminology professor who had just published a study on wrongful convictions, which was pretty much an unknown topic at that time. His name was C. Ronald Huff. Unfortunately, we lost him about a year ago, but he really opened my mind to just how extensive this problem was and gave me some of the sources that I could start uh, beginning to do research on the subject. Now, a lot of these uh, cases are familiar 
to us now, but were they familiar hmm. to people back uh, 30 years ago? Not generally. Um, this There had been a real void in any interest in wrongful convictions. Of course, in the 70s and 80s, the whole emphasis was putting people in prison and toughening up our, our crime uh, laws on crime. Um, so most people didn't really care that mistakes might be made. Uh, the one organization that stood out at that time was Centurion Ministries, which was founded by Jim McCloskey, I believe, in 1982 or 83. And he did, through the 80s, uh, expose a number of wrongful convictions, some of which were featured on 60 Minutes. So that helped get the word out there. But for a long time, there was almost no interest. My book, Presumed Guilty, was the first general book written on wrongful convictions in 30 years. There had been some books about individual cases, but no books about the, the overall problem. So there had been quite a void there. And, uh, and Jim McCloskey and Centurion were just about it as far as trying to tell the other side of the story. So that's what prompted my book. The most important thing that caused me to think that there was a book in this is uh, in 1988, a little lady came to the dispatch uh, office and guard called me. I went down and she handed me a video and she told me that this was a video about her son's wrongful conviction in Texas, and she thought that I might want to see it since I had written about the subject. So that that video was uh, the famed movie Thin Blue Line by Errol Morris, exposed the wrongful conviction of a Columbus man named Randall Dale Adams, who had moved to Texas in search of employment and ended up on death row for just some really crazy reasons and very poor investigation and corruption. So that movie became quite a sensation. Um, it was nominated for an Oscar. I don't think it won, but it was nominated uh, when Randall Adams was released in 1989, I believe. He appeared on a number of TV shows and actually uh, was invited to Italy and other countries to discuss wrongful convictions. So at that point, I told myself, you know, there, there's got to be a book here. So that's what really motivated me to get started on it. One of the things that kind of jumped out at me, and I know I mentioned this when I messaged you, uh, is that a lot of people assume that our understanding of wrongful convictions as opposed to wrongful convictions themselves really comes out of recent work uh, based on DNA exonerations and the Innocence Project. But what your book shows and, and what other books that uh, we're going to talk about in a minute show is that that's not really true. We've known about this for a long time. Yeah, we certainly have, and it goes through peaks and valleys. At certain points in the last century, century and a half, there has been some interest in wrongful convictions, and then 
the interest fades and the emphasis becomes more on putting people in jail rather than getting innocent people out of jail. Uh, the media plays a big role in this. I wrote a chapter for a book, uh, an academic book on wrongful convictions a few years ago about the news media's uh, good and bad contributions to the issue of wrongful convictions. And as a uh, Sherlock Holmes fan, I was pleased to see and write about that the first real writer who exposed wrongful convictions and made them right was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who exposed two wrongful convictions in Great Britain. And his exposés caused such a sensation that the British then set up a court of appeal. Up to that time, there had been no court of appeal in Great Britain. So there was suddenly an acknowledgement in Britain of wrongful convictions. And that somewhat spread to this country, uh, primarily through investigative journalists through the early 1900s, mid-1900s, uh, where individual reporters or a reporting team would expose a wrongful conviction and that would get some publicity, but it, it rarely gained um, real great momentum. Uh, although there was a TV show actually in a book called The Court of Last Resort in the 1950s by Earl Stanley Garner uh, that would investigate claims of wrongful conviction using some rudimentary tools such as the polygraph, things like that. And they would, in some cases, decide that the person was innocent, and that put pressure on the state uh, to release the person. But that was that was pretty much it. And then along came DNA in the late 80s, uh, which changed things tremendously. Yeah, and I don't mean to uh, downplay the role of of DNA because um, it really forced people outside of the criminal uh, legal community to accept that wrongful convictions happen. I happened to be uh, reading this weekend uh, Ghost of an Innocent Man, and they were talking about the formation of the Duke Innocence Center, and this quote stood out. I think all of us here if we were asked 15 years ago, we would have said that conviction of an innocent person wasn't a serious problem. That's what I would have said. Technically, sure, it might happen in a big city, maybe where you have some sort of corruption, but I think all of us felt pretty comfortable with the job we were doing. That comfort level has changed not only here, but all over the country. Today, we know from DNA testing that in some indefinable number of cases, we convict the innocent. So, you know, it, it forced people to understand that, you know, you here you had definitive proof, whereas before you had maybe theoretical ideas, right? Correct. This really gave great credibility to claims of innocence, whereas before people just wouldn't believe it. I mean, no matter how much evidence you might developed showing somebody was innocent, there would still be doubters. And then there was also an attitude, I'll never forget, that a senior reporter at the Columbus Dispatch came up to me after I had written 
some columns about the Randallville Adams case in Texas. And he said, you know, Randall Adams may, be, may not have committed that murder, but I'm sure he did something to deserve ending up where he ended up. <laughs> so, and this was an experienced reporter who should have known better, but that's the mindset of a lot of people. Well, if the guy didn't do that, he did something else, so it's no big deal. He's still a low-life criminal. And, of course, that's not always the case. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, and I remember uh, reading that quote in, in your book. Uh, when I first started uh, doing my court reporting, uh, one of the prosecutors came up to me and said, yeah, he might not have done this one, but uh, he's done a lot of bad stuff that he's gotten away with over the years, so don't feel sorry for him. Yeah, that's the attitude. And even though we've made tremendous progress, thanks to DNA and the Innocence Projects around the country, you will still see that people will quickly revert back to a presumption of guilt if there's a controversial murder case or accusations of child abuse or something like that. People will immediately start saying, lock them up or hang them, string them up, without knowing any of the facts. So that it's kind of just human nature if something bad has happened to assume anyone whose name came up must be a bad person. So that remains a, a real problem. That's very deeply ingrained, I guess, in, in our conscience, um, particularly in the American experience where people tend to be uh, very prone to uh, accusations and wanting to correct, correct injustice, which is wonderful, but you don't do that by committing more injustice. One thing that was really interesting earlier this year, actually, I had read the Court of Last Resort, uh, which you had mentioned by Earl Stanley Gardner. And he's kind of interesting guy. Um, you know, for those who uh, may not remember, um, he's the guy who developed the fictional character Perry Mason, which became uh, kind of a staple uh, defense attorney that was depicted uh in fictional accounts and TV shows over several decades. Um, so, so what did they do uh, in terms of uh, discovering wrongful convictions? It was quite interesting, I thought. Well, he was way ahead of his time, that's for sure. And he had a panel of experts. Um, and that's something that we could use more of in our criminal justice system is true experts who can see the flaws in the system and are familiar with them and know how to correct them. The Perry Mason series, of course, was so popular that he had a lot more credibility than somebody else who would start talking about wrongful convictions. He actually got lawyers and he got judges to buy into this uh, and look at, at these cases. Um, and not only that, but he identified key problems. He understood eyewitness identifications were, were flawed well before anybody else was doing that. Correct. You know, another case that was close to me, uh, I grew up in northern Ohio. And when I was a little boy, uh, the trial of the century was the Sam Shepard case. 
in which he was wrongly convicted of the murder of his wife. And of course, that ended up being borrowed from that whole experience uh, into the TV show and later the movie, The Fugitive. So I kind of grew up knowing that media hysteria and, and overzealous police work can lead to wrongful convictions. So that was something else that always was in the back of my mind. And the other one that you mentioned uh, briefly earlier and also in your book is, is, is the work of McCloskey. Um, and it's really interesting. Uh, after I was exchanging messages with you, I looked him up. And um, evidently, he and John Grisham are doing a talk on uh, December 1st. And because of the world that we have with COVID, uh, it's going to be over Zoom, so I'm going to go watch that. Uh, but uh, he's a fascinating character as well. He's he's is he a pastor or a father? He is a lay minister, I believe, in the Episcopal Church. He was a divinity student at the time he first became interested in wrongful convictions. I think part of his uh, course of study to be a minister included uh, an internship in prison ministry. And during his prison ministry, he met an inmate who kept telling him that he was innocent and it made some sense to Jim McCloskey. So he started looking into it and eventually got some attorneys involved and they eventually freed the guy. So that's how Centurion Ministry started. And through the 80s, it really was the standard bearer for wrongful convictions. There really wasn't anything else other than that until 1992 when the Innocence Project was founded. Kwaski was way ahead of his time. And I, I guess that's the baffling part of all of this is that, you know, when I first started looking into innocence, okay, it made sense, you know, uh, we had DNA exoneration, and it highlighted all these problems in the system that we really didn't know about. But reading your work and, uh, and reading The Court of Last Resort, we really did know about all this stuff for maybe 100 years. Yes, we did. And it would, as I said, it would get some interest, but then it would fade. Uh, there wasn't, if you didn't keep reminding people with case after case after case, they would forget it and they would revert back to the presumption of guilt of anyone who was arrested and accused of a crime. And the, the benefit of DNA and the mushrooming innocence movement has been there are constant reminders of the mistakes so that people can't say, oh, well, that was a one-off type of situation that doesn't happen that often. All these exonerations, and there have just been two or three in the last week, are a continual reminder that this happens all the time. And, of course, this is just the tip of the iceberg uh, of wrongful convictions. That's the real tragedy. And that was one thing that stuck with me in the Ohio State study back in 1983 that I wrote about. They estimated conservatively an error rate of one-half of 1% in felony cases, and they factored that out at that time to mean 
8,000 people a year were wrongly convicted of serious crime. They later revised that to 10,000. And now the estimates are, instead of one half of 1%, the, the estimates are up to 4%, which means tens of thousands of people are wrongly convicted every year. So that's pretty shocking. And the tragedy is this affects not only the innocent person, but their families, which a lot of people don't think about. But families are destroyed quite often by wrongful convictions. Well, and I think those numbers are actually worse than most people think because you think, oh, okay, you know, uh, 4% or I've seen uh, some estimates as high as 10% based on the percentage of people exonerated on death row. Um, but, you know, um, when we do our court watch, we figure that probably three quarters of all cases are kind of slam dunks that, you know, you kind of know who did it. You kind of know that there's a crime and, and, and you kind of believe that the person actually did it. And, and, you know, sometimes the trials are about what they actually did or how much culpability they have rather than guilt or innocence. And then there are probably, you know, 25% of all trials that you're, you're really in doubt on. And the thing is, is that 97% of all cases are settling out before they even get to trial. So if you Correct. think about the number of cases that actually go to trial, the number of cases that are actually slam dunk, and then you look at the number of wrongful convictions out of those 25% cases that are hard cases, you're getting a very high percentage of jury error in cases that you have any kind of question on. That is a much higher indictment, I think, than anyone is willing to admit i agree they just don't want to admit it and of course many people who are innocent plead guilty because of the risk of going to trial where you get what they call a trial penalty if you go to trial instead of taking a plea bargain you're going to get hammered with a much tougher sentence than you would if you plea bargain and so that's that forces a lot of people who are innocent to nonetheless plead guilty because they can get off, maybe not have to go to prison at all, or just have a short sentence instead of getting sentenced to life or something like that. <clears throat> and that, that's a, a growing concern. The Innocence Project has featured that uh, in the last year or two. So many innocent people plead guilty uh, because of the ramifications if they didn't. I had two uh, innocent uh, clients in the last few years who took what they call uh, the Alford plea, which is a plea in which you maintain your innocence but nonetheless plead guilty. And um, consequently, neither of those individuals who did quite a bit of time, in one case over 20 years, uh, they're not entitled to any compensation or anything else for the 20 years of their life that was stolen from them. So, um, by the way, you know, 
I think the National Registry of Exonerations has the figure at something like 17% of all their exonerations that people pled guilty on. So that's yes, almost really one in five. It's really frightening, but that's, that's what happens. And once you get caught up in the system, it's really hard to escape. You know, I at the beginning of my book, Presumed Guilty, I quote a law professor um, from back in the 1800s who said that, you know, woe is the person who gets caught up in the system because the criminal justice system is a mighty machine. And if you don't have extremely able counsel, you are quite likely going to get ground up and your blood mixed with that of other innocent people. And that's, that's really what happens. It's really, once you get sucked into the system, it's really hard to escape. And then another concern is if a person does plead guilty, then they're released uh, when they're usually released on parole, where the system still maintains control on, on them, sometimes for many, many years. And the parole system tends to enjoy, it seems, making parolees miserable. And you can end up back in prison very easily if the parole officer decided that you violated the terms of, of your parole so that uh, you may not do anything or you do something that is completely innocent, but the parole officer pulls your chain and the next thing you know, you're back in prison. So there are a lot of people in this country who are under government control uh, who, who needn't be. And one thing I think a lot of people don't understand is if, if you're punished, if you're found guilty by a jury, then you are presumed guilty now. You, are not, you have lost your presumption of innocence, which you had before the conviction. <clears throat> and new evidence might not be enough to uh, get you out. You have to actually show some kind of error, whether it's ineffective assistance of counsel or prosecutorial misconduct or judicial error, something uh, in order for them to even consider that new evidence. That's very true, and it has to be what they call new evidence. If you come across something or you develop something that you knew about and maybe even told the defense attorney about, but the de defense attorney did nothing with it. And then that evidence uh, materializes and looks maybe even more serious than you thought it was. Uh, since you knew about it or should have known about it, uh, you can't use that in your post-conviction proceeding. It has to be really new evidence, which of course DNA evidence normally is because for most older cases, DNA testing didn't exist, um, or the DNA testing procedures have greatly improved so that you can usually get that in as new evidence. But other things, you can't. And everything has to be timely, what they say is timely done. So that, you know, I had one very tragic case here, and, and sadly, it would kind of hit the end of the road because. Uh, one of the four people who were wrongly convicted just died of, of COVID-19 in prison. Um, but 
over the years, uh, this was a child abuse hysteria case, and over the years, the four children all came forward separately and having had no contact with their parents for 30 years and said this whole thing was untrue. They were coerced into their statements by their foster parents who were the real abusers. And we tried to go into court with that. And the original attorney who had it sat on it for a year or two. Um, so when he finally filed it, the court said, too bad, you've had this too long, it's not timely, so we're not gonna consider it. And of course, with recantations, which are very important in child abuse cases, for example, um, courts view recantations very skeptically. So that somebody can come forward, sometimes a great sacrifice to themselves to admit that they lied, and the courts will say, oh, we believe you when you testified under oath. So that's, that's a very perplexing problem too. People try to come clean, try to say that this didn't happen and explain how they came about to lie. And the courts say, that's too bad. We believe you in your original testimony. So those are the kind of procedural barriers that are set up that make post-conviction uh, relief very, very difficult to obtain. And how deep do you think this goes? Because really, if you think about what we know about wrongful convictions, it's it's pretty much murder and rape cases, um, largely because those are the cases that get the long sentences where there's time to exonerate. Somebody's in prison for two or three years. By the time you try to exonerate them, they're already out. Uh, do you think it's more common or less common in those cases? Well, there are a lot of other types of wrongful convictions that occur. Uh, drug cases, we're now realizing more and more that a lot of uh, testimony in drug cases is erroneous. Uh, quite often, the people who administered the test uh, were cheating, stealing the drugs, or what have you. So that sometimes hundreds of people could have been convicted based on the testimony or the findings of this forensic scientist who was a fraud. So you've got, you know, you've got thousands of those kinds of cases. Uh, DUI would be another one. The, uh, the, the equipment used to determine somebody's blood alcohol content is considered sacrosanct when actually breathalyzers uh, can be quite inaccurate if they're not, particularly if they're not properly calibrated. And so people are told that they had such and such a, a level of blood alcohol content and they were drunk uh, legally. And so they, they just take the plea and it's not necessarily a big thing, although in some cases it could end up with incarceration. Um, but they accept it because everyone believes it's a breathalyzer and breathalyzers can be very inaccurate. So you've got all these types of cases that are, you know, the bread and butter of the criminal justice system. It's not the murders and rapes, but these other things uh, that clog up the system quite a bit. And a lot of people just want it to end. So they plead guilty, even though they're innocent. So then there's the other end of the scale, uh, which is the death penalty. 
Um, so you had this example, which uh, is kind of chilling. Uh, William Jackson Marion was executed for the murder of a man found to be alive four years later. How does that happen? That is really scary, but it, it's happened in other occasions. And um, the, the system simply locks into something and they don't look at the alternatives that perhaps this person had a reason to disappear or they just chose to disappear. They were kind of a, a floater who just took off. And so the person's not around and somebody says, oh, so-and-so killed him. So that's all it takes to convict somebody. And so we don't really look at all the explanations for why this person may have disappeared or why this person died. We make up our minds very quickly and proceed to prosecute people unjustly. And of course, that's very common in, in, in investigations. It's become common knowledge now about tunnel vision that once law enforcement locks onto a person as a suspect, they will ignore all kinds of evidence to the left and the right uh, that might point in other directions and they just go straight ahead. And if necessary, maybe cheat a little or lie a little to make sure that this person they believe to be guilty is really convicted. So that it, despite all of our safeguards, that still happens quite a bit. And then, the other problem here is ineffective assistance of counsel. So you, you mentioned lawyers who represented deaf row inmates have been disbarred, barred, suspended, or otherwise disciplined at a rate of three to 46 times the average discipline rates for six states that were studied. I mean, I um, read, um, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, he was a deaf row inmate in Alabama, wrote, uh, wrote a book, and he was represented by an attorney who was basically a contract attorney who was hired uh, for $1,000. And when he first saw the guy, he said, they're only paying me $1,000, and I eat $1,000 for breakfast. Sadly, that is the attitude for a lot of attorneys. And they are the ones who get the appointments because they're willing to do it without running up expenses and making a bunch of noise. So that's who judges prefer. They don't really want to appoint an attorney who will fight for the defendant and maybe demand more tests and further investigation and greater discovery. They want somebody who will just go along and get this case out of the way. And so those are the attorneys the judges tend to go to. And some of the representation that I see quite frequently is pretty appalling. Yeah. And, you know, but those, but the system will say, well, we gave them an attorney, you know, it's not our fault. So what kind of attorney did you give them? Yeah. It's a, it, it's a big problem, especially in areas that don't have professional public defender offices that you're, uh, a lot of these attorneys are not even criminal attorneys. They, uh, I, I think one one guy mm -hmm. was a tax attorney, and he was uh, contracted to defend a uh, capital murder case. I mean, how, how does that not get thrown out in court at some point? 
it goes back to the presumption of guilt. These people are guilty, so who cares? And that makes it very, very difficult to overcome. So what is the most interesting case, as we got a few minutes left here, uh, most interesting case that you kind of chronicled? Well, I would say the Randall Adams case because it was so blatant in Earl Morris, the producer, who had been early in his career to put food on the table, also worked as a private investigator. So he had a little understanding of the system, but how he just <laughs> went around and interviewed people and the camera is really mesmerizing for a lot of people. And he just put the camera up in front of them and they started talking. And before you knew it, they were admitting that police had gotten them to lie or evidence had been withheld or other things. So that that was a pretty fascinating case. And of course, it ends with the actual killer more or less confessing on tape that he was the killer. And then later, he actually did admit to that. But another uh, sad after effect of wrongful convictions, as in this case, the Adams case, the guy who fingered Randall Adams when he was the actual killer went on to commit other murders. Well, Randall Adams was on death row for the murder uh, that originated the case. So that uh, that's pretty frightening, but that happens quite a bit. If you allow somebody to get away with murder, literally, uh, they're quite often going to commit murder again, and possibly partly because they got away with it. You know, they think, well, they're smarter. They can they can do it. And quite often their luck runs out for them, but sometimes it doesn't. When you have an error and you put the wrong person in prison, you're allowing somebody else usually who got away with a crime to go on and commit more crimes. That is the frightening after effect of wrongful convictions, that you're not just putting an innocent person in prison. Most often there's a crime that has been committed, not always, but most often. And when you get the wrong person, that means that the actual perpetrator is out and has the potential, at least, to commit more crimes. So I want to thank you, Martin, for coming on our show and talking about your book and the subject of wrongful convictions. Well, it's been my pleasure. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.